Our scripture reading today is going to be found in James chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, and then 8 through 18. Let us stand for the reading of God's word. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. And now we continue in verse 8. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have, made, who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, good morning, my Maranatha family. Good morning. morning. A couple of other family members that are here that I, I have to mention, or I'll hear about it at lunch. Uh, is my beautiful granddaughter, Emma, and my very smart and talented son-in-law, Brady. They're both with us today. And we have a grandson in your Sunday school, and your Sunday school may never be the same. I just want to uh, let you know that. But uh, our, uh, our little Justin is uh, one that uh, brings great blessing, as Emma does to us. And there's something about grandparenting that's just so wonderful because you can give them back, right? I mean, you who are grandparents understand that. But we are so blessed. And Nancy and I have been blessed to be a part of this congregation. We're coming up soon on our one-year anniversary. And uh, while we've known Greg and Chris uh, for many, many years in our former lives as university presidents, we've had the the wonderful opportunity uh, to be fed uh, Sunday after Sunday. Aren't we blessed as a congregation to be fed Sunday after Sunday uh, in the Word of God by a man of God? who really trusts the promises of God. And so that's been our great privilege. Uh, Greg and I meet uh, periodically every few weeks to uh, pray together and share together and, and uh, confess and vent things to one another that only people in leadership can do with each other. And uh, I have to confess, when he asked me to speak this Sunday, uh, and he assigned me James chapter 3, I got just a little worried. Uh, Since most of my career has been spent in the education business, uh, with this chapter leading off, let not many of you become teachers. And so I said, okay, Greg, are you trying to tell me something? And uh, I don't know how you say this in Greek or Hebrew, but something like if the shoe fits, wear it, you know, kind of thing. So we're going to try and get into this. 
I appreciate uh, mentioning uh, some of the time I spent in the field of broadcasting and radio and television. My uh, family is also involved in the media and uh, in helping to try and be salt and light uh, here in this great community that influences the world uh, so incredibly. And uh, somebody once said to me, David, you have a real face for radio. And I, at first I thought that was a compliment. Um, but I have had the privilege of spending about 15 years of my life in broadcasting. But most of it has been in the field of Christian education. And so this particular portion of Scripture, I think, really provides me, and I hope you as well, particularly during this Lenten season, with an opportunity to think about why Pastor James would have been so intense, because this is a pretty intense chapter. Uh, pulls no punches. You've already heard, as Greg has, has kind of elaborated on the teachings of uh, this particular book in the New Testament, <coughs> excuse me, that James was very direct. Uh, he had that privilege because he was the brother of Jesus. He was pastoring the first church of Jerusalem. Uh, perhaps it was located on Temple Street, so it could have been called Temple Street Church. Uh, I've had the privilege of leading several tours to to Israel, and always when we're in Jerusalem, we have a service in the upper room where the site of the, the Last Supper, and of course, where Jesus reappeared after the resurrection. <clears throat> and that particular traditional site is just a few blocks uh, from where the temple would have stood. And so they were meeting, likely in the upper room, because that was the last place where they would have felt the presence of Jesus. And so logically, they likely would have continued to meet there for as long as they could. And they were very much aware of the fact that one of the reasons people gathered in Jerusalem was for the teaching. You wanted to be as close to the Holy of Holies as you possibly could. You wanted to, to be, you know, right, you know, as, as an old evangelist used to say, you want to be up close to the spout where the glory comes out. That's why he was always exhorting us to move forward uh, in the camp meeting. Move up, move up forward. Get up close to the spout where the glory comes out. And so that's what they wanted to do. And so they had a lot of teachers there. But as we know, in terms of the Gospel's account of that teaching, <coughs> excuse me, much of it was not quite accurate. It was taught by Pharisees, who really rarely were fair. And it was taught by Sadducees, who were sad because they didn't believe in an afterlife, in a resurrection. And that's why they were sad, you see, because they had no hope. And so Jesus comes and, and challenges them to think differently about their teaching. And particularly then James picks up this very important insight where he says, I know for you folk here in, in the queen city here, so to speak, of, of the faith, the, the city that represents the pinnacle of our faith, that you're probably here because you like to be taught, but probably a lot of you would like to be in that influential position of being teachers. Here we are in the shadow of several wonderful educational institutions, including Fuller Theological Seminary and, of course, Maranatha High School. I have to say that. There may be board members present. Um, and here we have this influence here in Pasadena with wonderful educational and learning centers. And that's the way those people felt. And they were drawn to that because they wanted to be taught. But several of them were drawn to that with the hope that they, too, could have an influential position, that they could be teachers. Because in that culture and society, the most honored group were those who were in the rabbinical order, who were rabbis, who were teachers. 
the, so, the soberness of my being a teacher at several levels hit me when I was in Singapore. Because when I went there the first time to teach at the Asian Theological Center, and I was teaching people who already had masters and, uh, or bachelor's and master's degrees, most of them from English universities, I was overwhelmed by the awe and the respect that teachers are held in that kind of culture. Uh, we've changed a lot over the years in America, but uh, it just reminded me in the 70s when I first started going to Singapore just how significant it was to be a teacher because they hung on every word. I was teaching church history, and, and they were cautious. If I, if I would throw out an opportunity for them to interact with me, they were cautious to say anything that perhaps would look like they were disrespecting me as their teacher. That was kind of like how people felt about teaching in the early church. And so this influence of teaching was so significant because it was actually anchored to the importance of the nature of God created in us. We've been created with a divine ability to think about and conceptualize the unthinkable. We can actually grasp ideas and God created us in such a way that we could conceptualize, and not only conceptualize the mysteries of, of God's plan, the mysteries of the universe, but then to be able to articulate them and communicate them. And so he created us with an incredible capacity. You go to the Garden of Eden and you find right at the beginning of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, that the spoken word, the articulation and speaking something into existence was something that was innate in the character of God, which he then transmitted and put innate in the character of his human creation. Only we have been breathed in, if you accept the Genesis account, with the breath of God so that we can breathe out the words of God. And so he speaks into existence all of creation. You see throughout that first and second chapter of Genesis that there is this speaking into existence. He doesn't necessarily wave his hand or stomp his foot or do some other kind of, of articulation in terms of his physical body, but creation is created by the spoken word. And then he creates Adam and Eve. It is interesting that he makes Adam out of the dust of the earth. And after everything, uh, before Adam, he said, it is good, except he took a look at Adam and said, mm, not good, not good that man should dwell alone. And so he gave him a helpmeet, and that helpmeet came alongside of him and Eve and became that co-laborer together in speaking out the purposes of God and speaking into the created world the purposes of God for that creation. One of the most fascinating things for me in looking at, at the Hebrew, and I know a little Hebrew, just enough to be dangerous, and uh, that, that as you take a look at the dialogue that occurs between God and Adam and Eve in the cool of the evening, the implication of the sentence structure and the wording structure is that it was a mutually enlightening conversation. It wasn't just as my students in Singapore would do, sit there hanging on every word because they felt like they didn't have much to contribute. It really was a dialogue where God himself interacted with. It was an exchange of conversation where he had made mankind, humanity, with such capacity that we could actually have a stimulating discussion to God that he could leave after the discussion and himself feel enhanced, himself feel advanced because of the conversation 
The two-way communion, that's what communion means. It's both directions. That communication back and forth. He trusted Adam so much that after he spoke creation into existence, he let Adam name, nothing more sacred in Jewish tradition than naming. Very significant. When a child is named, it's one of the most significant things a Hebrew father does to name his children. And so God, his creation being his children, entrusts the naming responsibility to Adam. And the Bible says in Genesis that he gave every part of creation a name perfectly suited as God brought by Adam. What an incredible mind Adam and Eve must have had before sin tainted it and sin crippled it. What a responsibility Adam had to be sure that when he spoke, he spoke words that were in keeping with that which was appropriate for an instrument of the Most High God. And then we find a little bit later as we move through the Old Testament just how significant words can be negatively. And all of creation at that particular time in human culture and society is apparently of one language when we come to the story of the Tower of Babel. And essentially God hears them talking together, planning together. They're going to build a tower. And essentially what they're going to do is they're going to climb up and essentially bring God down. And so God confuses their language. He doesn't want them to have that kind of ability to unify and solidify around a common language, and so he confuses their language. You move on through the Old Testament, and you see these wonderful uh, prophets of the Old Testament. They really are the ones that are lifted up the highest in Old Testament culture, the prophetic prophets, priests, and kings. Priests were important, kings were important, but everything centers on the prophets the major and minor prophets. And and then when we get into the New Testament, we hear this declaration that this word of God is spoken by those who are infused by the Holy Spirit, that holy men and women were moved by the Holy Spirit to speak the word of God. Perhaps the most significant illustration of how important words are in God's kingdom is the fact that in John chapter 1, verse 1, as you think of all the ways the Messiah could have been described, and all the ways he could have been presented, and all the ways he could have been introduced to culture and society to accomplish his mission of allowing us to be forgiven of our sins. John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so, As Jesus works with us and redeems us, his final words that are recorded in Scripture as he ascends into heaven have to do with the Great Commission. And do you notice that the Great Commission is also word-centric? It says, go into all the world and make disciples, how? Teaching them to obey all that Christ had commanded. And so this is why James as he's beginning to see the clouds gathering on the horizon. He knows that there's coming a time when Jerusalem will be destroyed. Not one stone will be left upon another in the holy city, and the people will be sent out. And he's hearing the words of Jesus, go into all the world, preach the gospel, teaching them to obey all that Christ had commanded. And so he's very concerned that with this dispersion that's going to occur, that these... Christians closest 
to the spout where the glory comes out, want to be empowered with the ability to speak the words of the living word correctly. And so then he launches into this whole process of talking about the power of the tongue. Those of us who are in communications, you know, love metaphors. Uh, we love to, to think about metaphors. He says, uh, you know, just to give you an idea, congregation, uh, First Church, Jerusalem, uh, on Temple Street, let me, let me remind you about how little things accomplish and control big things. First of all, Nancy and I, I had the privilege of living in Kentucky when I was vice president at the seminary and then again when I was uh, president of Asbury College. And, and we were right in the middle of horse country. And those horses were thoroughbreds with minds of their own. But the way they were controlled was with a little bit. Amazing, James says, how such a little thing can direct and influence a, such a great force there isn't a horse alive that a man could wrestle to the ground. And so the way that power is controlled is through a little thing. Such is the tongue. It's little, but it controls a raging force and exhibits what really is at the basis, at the heart of this raging force of sin-filled human creation. He said, if that isn't enough... Let me think, and this is with my living in Virginia for so many years in the Norfolk area, which was the home of the North Atlantic Fleet, and then my involvement with the Coast Guard. <clears throat> this illustration really sends the signal, too, about how powerful the tongue is. He says, a great ship can be moved merely by a very small rudder. All it takes is a hand on the tiller or a hand at the helm just to move it a bit, and you can move... And we had two aircraft carriers based there in, in Norfolk. And uh, they were six to eight football fields long. And amazing that a person standing in at the helm could move that massive ship by such a little change of a rudder. And then he says, a fire is a good thing. But that little spark can either be used for good or evil. And too often... The spark that's in our tongue is used by Satan to set a raging forest fire that essentially scorches the earth where there's nothing left. We have that experience here periodically in, in this particular part of, of California where the forest fires go through. And for years afterwards, the scorched earth, all caused by one careless spark often that was not under control. And so he says... Be very aware of the responsibilities you carry as a teacher. He's not saying don't be a teacher. He's saying be very sobered <coughs> by the awesome responsibility you have as a teacher. Because not only does a teacher communicate truth, the teacher also has to judge what is true. And he repeats here in those opening verses of chapter 3 this idea that uh, Jesus talked about. You want to be careful when you start judging others. Because with the same degree of force and motivation and attitude that you judge them, you're setting the stage for you to be judged in a similar way. And this judge not that you be not judged in this idea of before you start evaluating, and that's particularly for those of, true for those of us who are in authority positions, 
Because we have to evaluate as teachers. We have to grade and we have to, as supervisors, evaluate. But the whole idea and attitude is to do it graciously. We'll talk about that in a few moments in terms of how we exercise our evaluative responsibilities as parents and supervisors and leaders in ways and in contexts that promote life rather than pain. Um, I was ordained in, in one of the Methodist traditions, and much of the ordination vows were taken from uh, John Wesley's journals. And uh, the bishop uh, had a little sequence he would go through when in the ordination process of questions. And then annually I'm required, in order to keep my credentials active, uh, to reaffirm uh, those promises that I made. The one that always got a little chuckle was this one. And I'll have to talk like a bishop. You know how bishops talk. He would say, now, I need to ask you this question. Do you promise neither to speak too long or too loud? And we'd all smile and nod our heads and say, yes, bishop, we promise not to speak too long or too loud. But the humor ceased and a holy hush came over the ordination group when we were asked this next question. It was this, right from the journals of John Wesley. Guard carefully every word you speak. Because of your lofty position, your words will either eat as doth a canker, our common contemporary word is cancer, or heal as doth a balm, B-A-L-M, or anointment. And at that moment, a holy hush would fall over those of us being ordained because we would be so aware of how critical it was that we who would be the primary purveyors of the saving message of the word that became flesh would guard carefully and weigh carefully every word we spoke. There are some other things that get attributed to various people. I love the things that are attributed to Abraham Lincoln, most of which I'm sure he never said, but let's credit him with them anyway. And uh, one is uh, the whole idea that, you know, even a big fish wouldn't get in trouble if it kept its big mouth shut. Uh, that's an interesting uh, kind of saying. Another one that was attributed to him is this one that says, it's better to remain quiet and let people think you're ignorant than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. But don't those get at, again, how powerful and significant words are. And so our words can either eat as doth a cancer, become a disease, or they can heal as doth a bomb. As we get into verses 14 through 16, James gives us some insight into what cancerous speech sounds like. And, and what it does, and particularly what it's rooted in. Any good doctor will first want to run some diagnostics. And, and so if we've got speech that essentially is producing uh, bitterness and hurt and pain, we need to understand that it's rooted often in two kinds of motivations. The first he suggests is bitter envy. We often are critical of others and speak harshly to others or about others because we're envious. There's something about that person that we wish we were. There's something about that person's possessions that we wish we had. 
And, and, and we, we are so focused, laser-locked on that individual as a nemesis that a root of bitterness begins to, to kind of grow in our spirit. And so every time that person's name comes up or that person is talked about, what comes out of the mouth is bitter envy. Bitter envy. How we need to self-examine. When we have a negative reaction towards someone, when their name comes up, what really is causing that? Many times it's bitter envy. The other aspect of that, though, has to do with this idea that in some way, by speaking negatively about others, we think we're advancing ourselves. And so James says here, so much of that critical commentary that comes out of our mouth that is cancerous really is self-seeking in terms of trying to not only put the other person down, but hopefully by doing that to elevate ourselves. And he says, that certainly runs contrary to the servant model of Jesus Christ. Wonderful declaration that he being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man and being found in a fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. There's no self-seeking in the ministry call of Jesus. And so James says, you're revealing something when you speak bitterly about someone else. This whole idea of bitter speech often can be diagnosed in terms of boasting. Not only is it putting somebody else down, but it's also bragging about yourself in contrast to that person. He suggests that lying... He suggests that one of the fruits that come out of that particular kind of bitter envy and self-seeking, that boasting and lying, is confusion. And then he goes on to say something very, very intense. I think he's kind of over the top here. He says, and every evil present in culture and society can be traced back to the tongue. Wow. Wow. And if we had a couple of hours, we could kind of go through a catalog of evil and sin in society. And I think we would see that James was right. That it all happened first as a conceptualization and then as an articulation that then caused us to move away. And how did sin first come into the world? It was Satan creating confusion through his speech. Did God really say? Tomorrow is uh, St. Patty's Day. I don't know how many Irishmen are here or people that would wish they were Irishmen. I have uh, Irish roots and uh, in, on my mother's side of the family. And uh, one of the great traditions is the kissing of the Blarney Stone. If you've ever, ever been to Ireland, some of you, you've kissed the Blarney Stone. Unfortunately, we don't understand what the root of that was. If you go back in Irish history, you discover that there was a gentleman who was going to court and was fearful about uh, whether or not he could deceive the court well enough to get his way. And so he petitioned one of the, uh, one of the, the goddesses that he worshipped. And she said to him, okay, here's what you do. The first stone you come to when you walk out the door, kiss it. And he did. And essentially, it says that he won his case because he was able to deceive and twist. 
Well, the Blarney Stone has been popularized and is present in the castle, and if you've got the physical stamina and the, uh, uh, and, and the flexibility, you can lean over and kiss the Blarney Stone, uh, thinking that that will just enrich your vocabulary in some way, but the real root of it is deception. The real root of it is deception. You see, the stone we should be kissing is the rock Christ Jesus. <laughs> and if our lips are on Him then something happens in terms of the transformation of what we speak. And we need to guard carefully three kinds of speech, I think. First is speech that reflects on and characterizes somebody's character. You know, we used to, as I was growing up, we said, you know, your mother's ugly and wears combat boots. I mean, those were the kinds of things that, you know, that we, we essentially would throw at each other. But I'm talking about stuff far more serious than that. Often, because we don't have a strong enough argument to convince other people that we're right, what we do is we essentially assassinate the character of the person with whom we disagree. We're not smart enough. We don't know the reasons enough. We don't have enough solid rationale for our position. And so, because we can't win on the merit of the argument, we're going to try and win on the assassination of the character of the one making the argument that for whatever reasons we don't support. Boy, we need to guard that as Christians. So often there are people in culture and society that we disagree with for a whole bunch of reasons. But too often, and all you have to do is listen to talk radio for five minutes, and you find that everything deteriorates to character assassination. No place for that on the lips of Christians. No place for that whatsoever. Because you see, character assassination should, be motiv- uh, should not be a part of the way we approach our dialogue and our discussion. The second are the words of authority figures. If you're an authority, as was suggested by John Wesley, you need to be very, very careful when you're evaluating and critiquing people. We'll talk in a few moments about a model for, uh, from that great saint, Mary Poppins. who declared this wonderful truth that a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. It's one of the most important things that we can teach leaders in any setting. And, uh, you know, to, 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 to set the stage for so that the bitter thing that this person has to hear is sweetened by some kind of affirmation and support that affirms their character rather than assassinates their character, affirms their value and worth rather than undermines their value and worth. And so we in leadership have to learn that, yes, part of our responsibility is to critique. It is to judge. It is to evaluate. But we need to do it in such a way that it does not in any way leave a lasting negative. Uh, I wasn't uh, the brightest bulb on the tree and the sharpest knife in the drawer, as some would say, (laughs) particularly in high school. And so in in the 10th grade, I was called in by the guidance counselor. And uh, he said to me, "Uh, David, you're a nice boy, but you're too stupid to be in school. And uh, at least that's what I remember. I don't know what he actually said, but that's what I heard. That's what I heard. You're too stupid to be in school. And I'll tell you what I'm going to do. You're about to turn 15. When you do, I'm going to uh, get you a job in either one of the gold mines or one of the lumber mills. I lived in northern Canada, and uh, mining and lumbering were the two major industries up there. And so I lived down to his expectations, flunked out of high school. Don't have a high school diploma to this day. 
That's why I'm back at high school trying to get this figured out, you know. <laughs> trying to complete the circle here before I go to meet Jesus, you know. And, uh, and, and the faculty are wonderful. They say, well, David, may be true. You're not the sharpest knife in the drawer but, and not the brightest bulb on the tree, but you can do it. We have confidence in you. We, we want to encourage you. There are ways that we can say things as authority figures. And for me, the words of that guidance counselor almost ran me off the rails of the plan God had for my life because I thought, since he was an authority, guidance counselor, he knew what he was talking about. So I embraced his perspective of me contained in those words. Okay, I'm about to go from preaching to meddling. (laughs) And some of the most difficult words that cause the greatest cancer in people's spirits are what we as family members say to each other. Nothing can be more hurtful and more lifelong lasting than words spoken in anger or in frustration or in confusion. I shared with you last time I was here that I come from a difficult home situation. My dad was an alcoholic and abandoned us when I was about 10 or 11. And uh, I'm, I'm this spitting image of my dad. We could be twin brothers when you see pictures of him in his early uh, 20s and then you see pictures of me back in those teen years. And that created significant stress between my mother and I. And uh, there was a lot of yelling, a lot of anger, a lot of frustration on my part, a lot of fear and anxiety on my part. My mom was struggling with some emotional and physical problems. And, and so the anger and, and the frustration, the I hate you, I, you know, I wish you'd never been born uh, kind of language, and was going back and forth. I came home from school when I was 14, the age of the incoming freshman at Maranatha High School. And I found my clothes on the front lawn and my mother had locked the door and she was screaming through the door, you're no blankety-blank good. You'll turn out like your blankety-blank old man. I never want to see you again. You know, that was over 50 years ago. And even when I still share those words, they hurt. And Satan has used those so many times in the midst of a significant leadership challenge or a significant decision to say, well, you're really not capable. In the end, you're going to drop the ball like your old man did. And as I shared with you last time, I had the privilege of seeing my dad come to faith. And I need to tell you quickly that I also had the privilege of being reconciled to my mom many years later and to ask her forgiveness for what I had said to her and to receive from her a similar kind of feedback. But folks, what we say in the family and to one another will either bear fruit or bear scar tissues. And so let's be very, very guarded. And I know we feel safe sometimes to just let it all out. But let's be very careful that we speak words that over the next 50 years are going to produce fruit rather than pain, that are going to be the balm of Gilead, the rose of Sharon, rather than debilitating, destroying, and death-creating cancer. So James, wanting to leave on a positive note, says, okay, with that said, let me talk to you about what wise speech is. And we'll just run through this quickly. 
He says, wise speech is characterized by several things. First of all, as you begin in verse 17, he says it's pure in its motivation. That when you speak, you're motivated out of a pure heart and intent. Your objective is not to defeat or destroy the other person, but to win them and to encourage them and support them. That's your motivation. Not to prove that you're smarter than or have more verbal capacity than or can intimidate, but your motivation is to speak life into this situation. Second thing he says is that the ultimate goal is to bring peace, not to stir the pot, not to create more problems. If after the conversation things are worse, that's not wise speech. And so James says, let's be sure that we always keep in mind that the end of this conversation needs to end with a peace treaty, smoking the peace pipe, that even if we disagree, we're agreeable about our disagreement. The next thing he says is gentle in his presentation. The weaker our argument, the louder most of us get. The more intense the most of us get. The more we feel like we're losing the battle, the more energy, the more red face, the more clenched teeth, clenched fists we have. And and if that's happening, that's not wise speech. It's a warning signal that there's something else that's going on that could produce cancer rather than ointment. He says it's willing to yield. There are times when we need to give up on being argumentative. Have you ever met anybody that just loves to argue? I mean, it doesn't matter what the situation is. They're just argumentative. That's their spirit. He says, no, no. Wise speech is willing to yield. It knows when to shut up, fish, so you don't get hooked and reveal things in your heart that God needs to deal with. It's full of mercy and good fruits. It's, as I said earlier, it's, its motivation is to convince and win, not, not coerce and defeat. It's without partiality. Aren't you glad that Nathan was willing to speak the truth to King David? If he hadn't, King David might have remained in sin. But because he was bold and I think respectful, when he confronted David with his sin with Bathsheba and said, David, thou art the man. So often we allow our speech, and it's so unwise when we do this, to be shaped by the audience. We tell people what we think they want to hear, or we're afraid to tell them what we believe we need to say to them because of some kind of repercussion or some consequences that they're going to get us in the end. You know, watch your back because you might win this battle, but you're going to lose the war down the road. So we shape our conversation. We don't speak the truth in love. Wise speech speaks that truth in love. It's without hypocrisy. There's no difference between the words and the actions. Go back to this concept that he mentions earlier in the chapter. You know, how is it possible that with our words we bless God and then we turn around and we curse the very creation of God? He said, that's impossible. It's like brackish water and fresh water flowing from the same spring. It's like a fig tree producing some other kind of fruit. It's impossible. There's something systemically, for those of you in the biological area, systemically wrong if a fig tree is producing bitter fruit. There's something wrong with the tree. And so he's saying here that we've got to be very, very careful that our speech is without hypocrisy because nothing will compromise people's willingness to believe the word like our not being men and women 
of our word and being consistent that the actions match the speech. That what we say and what we do are consistent with the word become flesh. In the end, the wisest speech always has as its kind of outcome the building up and the reinforcement of the worth of the individual that we may be debating with or arguing with or discussing with. And so we come to this Lenten season. And the home that took me in, Jim and Marion Pointer, really felt strongly about this business of good speech. Marion, who was the bulldog in the family, and we all knew it, the mother, if we started to critique anyone, her first thing was say, no, no, stop, stop. David, I want you to say ten good things about that person before you say one more negative thing. And if I try to say, no, no, ten good things, I got usually to three, and then I got the point. There wasn't any point of saying anything further. We are in the Lenten season. Wouldn't it be wonderful to think about Lenten lips and Lenten tongues? That essentially, let's, let's try a three-to-one thing, okay? because that's as far as I could get. Okay? Before we say anything negative to someone in particular, we say three good things about them. Because as the prophet Poppins so clearly said, a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. But then the issue is, okay, suppose our lips aren't Lenten. You're sitting here probably like I am as I've been preparing and even preaching this message. I'm the Holy Spirit speaking to me about some things that I've said and should not have said and things I need to say now because I shouldn't have said the things I did say. Do you follow that? What do I do? Well, go over to Isaiah 6. Isaiah is standing there in the sixth chapter in this incredible revelation-like a depiction of, of heaven. And the, the uh, doorposts are, are being moved by the voice of God and smoke's filling the temple and seraphims and cherubims are flying around singing, Holy, 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 Lord God of hosts, the whole earth is full of, of, of your glory. And, and Isaiah is immediately aware of how unholy he is. One of the reasons we don't seek the face of God more aggressively is because we know if we do, that may well be some revelation that we're not comfortable with. But he expresses this in a very dramatic way. The Hebrew doesn't quite make it as clear. He said, woe is me, for I am undone. Now, the more accurate translation is, uh-oh, I've been caught with my pants down. That's what it means. I'm fully exposed. There's nothing hidden anymore. And so then he pinpoints the source of his unholiness. What is it? He says, my lips, I've seen the glory of the Lord. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And so, I'm aware of my unholiness. And you know what God says to him? I know you're not Irish, but you need to kiss a rock. And he sends a seraphim to the altar of sacrifice. And the seraphim pulls a stone, a coal, off the altar of sacrifice. 
and comes and touches Isaiah's lips. And the God of the universe proclaims to him, With this you are cleansed. And from that moment on, the most powerful images painted in words about the coming Messiah are found in the book of Isaiah, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Hallelujah. Forever and ever. Here this man who recognized that, as James would point out centuries later, that the real indicator of our sin is what comes out of our mouths. And so we need Lenten lips. We need to understand that our lips can be sanctified because Jesus tasted death. Our lips can be sanctified if we allow the cleansing power of what he did on Calvary, expressed in the coals from off the altar of sacrifice, because he was the sacrifice. He fueled those coals to touch our lips so that then we can live, probably ceasing from speaking too long and too loud, but more importantly, to guard every word we say, because it will either eat as doth a cancer, or heal as doth anointment. To God be the glory. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen.